There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hi, Jim. Hi, everybody. Uh, Great to be back. Uh, Today, there is tons going on that we'd like to talk about. We're not going to get to everything, but uh, I suspect Jim and I have got enough material now for the next few podcasts with the events of the last few days. Today, we want to start with this hedge fund blow up that's making the headlines in the business pages, at least, and the front pages of publications like the Financial Times. There's uh, a hedge fund um, blown up in the United States. Um, run by a guy called Bill uh, Huang, and uh, it's it's got a a really peculiar name called Archegos Capital. Um, This essentially manages uh, this guy's money, as far as we understand. It's called a family office, which is uh, jargon for a restricted fund. As the name suggests, it normally manages one family or sometimes one individual's uh, cash. There are plenty of rich people out there that can do this, form their own asset management business, their own hedge fund, if you like, to manage their own money. Chance would be a fine thing, eh, Jim? Anyway, this guy grew out of um, one of the uh, big, big macro hedge funds of the last uh, century, actually, of the the, the 90s called uh, Tiger Management. And that was run by a famous guy called Julian Robertson in the heyday of macro hedge funds, the, the funds that took big bets on things like currencies, and big picture events, that hence the name Macro. Now, this guy has been in trouble before. Um, he's settled with the SEC over some shenanigans that took place a few years ago, and it was assumed that he would disappear without trace as a result of getting into trouble with the regulator in the United States. But he's popped up again in trouble, and uh, 
what he's done is what, what always seems to happen with these kinds of blow-ups. And he's ended up owing somebody a lot of money that he can't pay back. And that somebody or those somebodies are um, the bit world's big banks. Names like Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs and others are in the list of entities that uh, some of which are reputed to be uh, losing billions. Now, hedge funds blowing up might seem esoteric. It might seem interesting to those of us that are still involved in financial markets. But how does it affect the ordinary person? Well, for that, I think we need a little bit of history and how hedge funds have got us all into trouble, every single one of us in the past. And I know, Jim, you take a great interest in financial history. So perhaps you could run through one or two of the ways in which in the past hedge fund uh, blowups, hedge fund misadventures have caused all of us trouble. Over to you, Jim. Well, I guess, Chris, uh, you've mentioned Archegos Capital Management. Um, What they were basically doing was taking major bets on stocks um, and these bets were being funded by, and it's amazing to see uh, the names that have been thrown out, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, UBS, Nomura, all of the big names of global banking um, are stuck in the middle of this. And they basically lend billions of dollars to Bill Wang to take very, very dangerous positions in volatile equity markets. And the collapse in the share price of Viacom, CBS, Um, appears to be what has triggered these problems. And these banks are now trying to see how they can have an orderly wind down of these positions that have created so many problems. So I guess one of the lessons here is that, um, and I think we've spoken about this before in an earlier podcast, about banks and financial institutions never learn. You know, they keep repeating the same sorts of mistakes over and over again. And it is interesting in the context of Articus, um, the market impact to date is very, very limited. You know, it's barely registering on the screen today in terms of bond markets, equity markets, and so on. Um, and clearly, the markets believe this is a once-off event. But there is a little bit of history, as you say, to look back on. Um, I remember back in April 2007, a subprime mortgage lender that nobody, certainly in this side of the world, had ever heard of called New Century Financial Um, It was a subprime mortgage lender. It filed for bankruptcy in April of 2007. And then a little bit later on that year, on the 7th of August, um, BNP halted redemptions on three investment funds. Okay, and that really triggered the beginning of the great financial crash. So, and, you know, the, the, the way in which it spread its tentacles through the whole global economic and financial system so quickly It escalated so rapidly. Uh, It created an amazing problem, the legacy of which is still around. And then if you even go further back, I think it was um, 98 or thereabouts, long-term capital management when it got into serious difficulty. So, and you could keep going back. Um, History just keeps repeating itself um, in these areas. And um, it will be worth watching to see how this, this evolves. As I say, at the moment, The markets are basically unconcerned. But if you were to get a second blowout of this nature, well, then you start to wonder, is there another systemic problem in the global financial system that could materialize into something much worse? Absolutely. And I think that point you make there is is bang on the money. The the second 
uh, if there is to, if there is a second one of these, then I think markets will sit up and take notice. What you, you talked about history there, and one of the interesting aspects of the history of this uh, of these kinds of blowups is the way in which they all end up looking very very similar. Um, this guy used, according to the reports that I've read today, um, something called uh, swaps um, and other instruments that look suspiciously, to me anyway, like contracts for difference, which essentially is a, a way of betting on share price movements without actually buying or selling the stock involved, the company involved. And of course, we've, we've lots of, uh, or at least one very big example of somebody getting into trouble in Ireland using precisely these kinds of, of instruments, CFDs as they're called, or, or, or essentially swaps to use the proper jargon. Um, and it's a way of taking huge positions in stocks without actually buying or selling them. But there's always somebody on the other side of this trade. And this, this particular case, it's the banks that lent the money to this guy to do these trades and did the trades with them something called the prime brokerage nexus of, of capital markets, something most of our listeners, I suspect, will never have heard of, but they are incredibly important players. And they take positions to hedge, to go the other side of what this guy is doing, to facilitate what he's doing. And they're the ones that have had to be selling these stocks, some of the names that you mentioned, and driving the share prices all over the place. Um, and, and it's leverage. It's the use of borrowed money. And that's what always seems to come out of these things, either in very simple ways or in very sophisticated ways. Somebody somewhere has borrowed an awful lot of money to take an enormous bet on something somewhere in the financial markets, a bond, an equity, or, or something related to that. And it goes wrong and they can't pay the money back. The financial crisis at the end of the day was caused by people not able to pay their money back on their mortgages and people who had bet on that. It was an extraordinary story in and of itself. Uh, you wanted to cut in there, Jim. Yeah, I mean, what, what's happening here with Articles Capital Management is that it had taken these massive short positions in equities, particularly on that Viacom stock, as I say. And under these sorts of financial transactions or these instruments, uh, you put up a margin, um, you know, and, and then you get massive leverage from the banks at the other side of the transaction. But with the collapse in the share price, um, you, you then get what's called a margin call. In other words, you have to pay money into your account um, to offset some of the losses that are being suffered. And this is where um, Bill Wang got into so much trouble. He's unable to fund these margin calls, as I understand it. But the point about it is it may sound very technical, but there is a strong resonance with um, Irish, recent Irish history. Um, I was recently rereading the book by Simon Carswell, Anglo Republic, uh, because there was a court case going on that was eventually settled um, a couple of months back involving a former executive of Anglo Irish Bank and IBRC. And reading Simon Carswell's book, you know, he explains that whole issue with Sean Quinn taking short positions through CFDs in the Anglo share price. And then when the Anglo share price started to collapse, uh, Sean Quinn got into serious difficulty in funding these margin calls. Um, then you had the, the money that was lent um, to Anglo Irish from Irish Life um, over the end of an accounting period. And you also had money being lent to 
Sean Quinn to actually fund these margin calls. So there's a huge resonance here um, in the context of what was one of the biggest financial shocks to hit the Irish system, you know, in generations. So as I said earlier, what we are seeing playing out at the moment with Artigas is just history repeating itself. And it is quite extraordinary that the regulators are never able to keep up with financial markets and financial innovation, as we call it, because the bottom line is that the people who are driving these sorts of businesses tend to be a lot better paid and a lot smarter than the people who are actually regulating them. So you end up with these serious difficulties. And it is quite amazing that actually a family investment fund, such a family office such as this, could be given so much leverage by the big names in global banking. Uh, it, it beggars belief. It, it, it yeah. beggars the odds. It, those, those remarks were echoed, I think, by a lot of people commenting on this today and that uh, um, why these banks just lent this money to this firm that allegedly has a lot of previous in terms of getting up to things that uh, eventually ended up in regulatory trouble. So there are two questions. Why did people lend so much money to somebody with previous? And why did the regulator let it happen? This, this wasn't a particularly esoteric area. We've tried to explain it in simple terms, and I, I think we've succeeded. I'm reminded, um, you, you mentioned it was a margin call uh, at the time of the financial, just af after the financial crisis, there was a, a movie of that name that tried to explain the financial crisis with reference to the margin call. That was the name of the film. In, in another movie about the financial crisis, The Big Short, um, they were trying to explain a different instrument, uh, something called collateralized debt obligations. Um, CDO was the, the acronym. We invent all sorts of horrible pieces of jargon for things that actually are quite easy to explain. But often people find quite dull. And I, and I remember during the big short, as people, as the, the movie was trying to explain what a CDO uh, actually is, the, the way in which they tried to get people's interest peaked in this is that they had a very attractive blonde in a bubble bath explaining what a CDO was. Um, these things are tricky, but nevertheless, incredibly important. And people uh, resort to various devices to try and get people interested and pay attention to them. Because ultimately, as we saw with CDOs during the financial crisis, contracts for difference in Ireland, um, these things end up affecting all of us. Those positions that you mentioned that were taken in Anglo-Irish Bank ended up costing the Irish taxpayer an awful lot of money, money that we will be having to pay back and service the debt on, um, the associated debt for many, many years to come. So what the reason why we're talking about it, we're not doing the blonde in the in the bubble bath thing, but we are trying to draw people's attention to this, that it is well worth watching. And really to reach the conclusion, as you said, Jim, that if we get another one of these, um, we could be in for trouble again. At the moment, as you say, it looks uh, as if it's self-contained, as if it's a one-off. But I think we're everybody in financial markets um, are keeping their fingers crossed that that is indeed the case. Go on, Jim. Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the other uh, lesson that should have been learned that still hasn't been learned is the, the evils and danger of leverage. Um, if you think back on all of those property funds that were sold here into the Irish market, uh, that were bought by all sorts of investors, including credit unions, property funds that were massively leveraged up. And of course, when 
uh, the thing went belly up. Um, billions of euro were lost as a result of that. And so that's one thing, the dangers of leverage and people who invest always need to be really aware of how much leverage there is involved in any particular investment they might be undertaking. And um, I think the second thing is that it becomes more and more clear that the as financial innovation drives much more sophisticated um, sorts of financial instruments, um, those that sell the instruments or the investments rarely understand what they really are all about. Um, and even more so, the regulators who are trying to regulate these understand less about them. So um, I think the, one of the morals of the story here is that for any normal investor, um, never invest in something that you do not understand. And in that context, um, Bitcoin certainly comes to mind for me. Um, that's something you've discussed before, Chris, in other fora. Um, and I think it's something we will return to because it's, it's definitely an evolving story. Okay, enough of hedge fund blurbs and what it might or might not mean. And now, as we often do at this point in our podcast, something completely different. I was struck yesterday by... Um, the announcement by the Irish government of another plan for rural economic regeneration called Our Rural Future, Rural Development Policy 2021-2025. And why I was struck by it was, number one, it got massive headlines in the media yesterday evening and last night. Um, it was regarded as another you know, very significant attempt to try and regenerate rural economic activity and drive rural economic development. Um, the other thing that struck me about it was that here behind me, I have a shelf of reports on various rural economic development plans um, going back to the National Spatial Strategy in 2002. And we've got all sorts of iterations on that subsequently. So um, the, the, the chances are what we saw announced yesterday um, will just join um, that bookshelf is another part of the collection uh, because, uh, and we'll talk about the details of it in a second. Um, as a Welshman, Chris, who has done a lot of work on Welsh regional economic development, what do you think? Well, I spent 10 years, as I think you know, Jim, you might remember, not too long ago, doing a pro bono gig for the Welsh Assembly Government, as it was called then. Um, it's the Welsh Parliament now, or Senedd in Welsh. Um, they've changed their names, uh, think changed the name, but uh, they're still there doing what they do. And it was an initiative of the then First Minister, a guy called Rodri Morgan, um, who's sadly uh, deceased now. And he essentially wanted to make a difference. His heart was really in the right place. Like a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, like a lot of politicians, he wanted to make a difference, particularly to the regions of Wales that were less developed than, say, the capital city of Cardiff. And he got a group of um, very smart people and me, <laughs> so there were six of us, um, to report directly to him, to meet frequently, to commission research, actually. We, we were given a budget and we commissioned lots and lots of research into how to uh, develop the various less developed bits of Wales, of which there are quite a few. We spent 10 years doing it. Um, it was very interesting to observe the bureaucracy around this. I remember very well our first meeting was in a, in a hotel in Cardiff. And there were more observers than there were people actually on the, this committee. The observers were there, I subsequently learned, mostly to check out that we weren't actually going to do anything, to reassure themselves 
that we weren't going to make a difference. And these were people from local councils, local agencies, from all the different bits and pieces of the public and um, quasi-public sector quangos that proliferate in, in our economies these days. And the vested interests in, in making sure that we didn't actually do anything were pretty well entrenched. And we spent 10 years on this gig and we achieved absolutely nothing. And that's one particular example. I'm sorry if I sound a bit bitter about it, um, but uh, we, we did try. Um, it didn't work. And more generally, that's what happens with regional development. Um, there are some notable exceptions, but it's a lesson that it's very, very hard for lots of reasons. Um, vested interests are never interested in change is one of those uh, reasons why, why there are so many headwinds. Um, even when everybody is aligned, it's incredibly difficult because the policy levers that you've got um, are few and far between. Um, it's very difficult to um, impact one region without spending an awful lot of money, which raises the question of value for money when you're doing this. It's very difficult to um, fight against economic geography because the pull of the city um, the regions that are always rich, um, is, it's, it's, it's an economic black hole. It just attracts more economic activity. So every country in the world has struggled with this, um, with the growth of cities at the expense sometimes of the regions. And, and you, are fighting, uh, you are fighting gravity in a, in a way. It's not impossible, but you, we need to remind ourselves just how much history there is of many countries trying this. The European Union itself you may recall, has given Ireland and other countries um, bundles of money, some of which has worked. And um, you might remember all those structural funds, regional development funds that were, that were granted essentially by the German taxpayer to Ireland um, over several decades. And to an extent, it's worked. Um, to a large extent, it hasn't. It, these things are very, very difficult to achieve. There's no magic wand. Um, and one of the mistakes that people make, and I, I saw this in my own Welsh experience, is that what has worked at, at one particular point in time for one particular region in the world doesn't necessarily transfer to somewhere else. There is no single formula, sing, one checklist of things that you run through in order to achieve things. Um, I'm struck actually by the reference to broadband, and I know that's been a, a hot topic in Ireland for many years, rural broadband. Um, I interviewed Mark Carney, the ex-governor of the Bank of England last week, ab about his latest book called Values. And it's about lots of things. But one of the things that he talked about, almost as a human right um, that we need to, to get right, is access to fast broadband for all. Because he certainly believes that it's, it's, it's a, a necessary condition for development and that without it, your regions just um, are, are going, it is one headwind that you can remove and that you should remove. Um, so it's it's tough, Jim, and I I, I certainly um, hope that the Irish authorities can do what they have to do because I think it's incredibly important to 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 do something for the poorer regions. Um, uh, but please acknowledge how hard it is and um, don't waste too much money on it. Yeah, I one of the big global megatrends um, is undoubtedly and has been for decades now and is projected to be for decades to come. Um, the growth of urban areas, the growth of cities, more and more people moving into urban areas. I suppose one just wonders if in the context of COVID-19, um, is there going to be a marked change in that whole um, global megatrend towards urbanisation? 
Um, I actually don't think they will, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I think the cities will continue to uh, be vibrant. They will continue to attract young people because there's a whole social ecology that makes cities very attractive for young people. Uh, but having said that, and I suppose that does demonstrate, as you've demonstrated as well, the difficulty in having effective and successful regional economic development policies. Um, I come from um, very much rural rural County Waterford, uh, the middle of nowhere, basically. And I have observed over the years when I visit the place, you know, it's being denuded of young people and economic activity and so on, or at least that had been the trend. But suddenly, in my particular area, um, you get a development such as the Waterford Greenway, which has really revitalised um, that part of Waterford. And in fact, the local village that I'd be closest to is Kilmac Thomas, famous for Flavin's porridge, uh, but nothing else. Um, it was a dying village. And now, uh, about three years after the Greenway was launched, there are traffic queues in the town. Uh, there's four or five coffee shops and restaurants after opening up. So it's become a very vibrant hub of tourism activity. Um, and, and that was the Waterford Greenway was basically driven by the vision and the stubbornness of the city and county manager in Waterford. He drove that project against all of the odds and initially at least with very little official support. So you can see that these things can happen that can have a very significant impact. Uh, but you'd have to also you know, admit that the whole question of rural economic growth and development is incredibly contentious. It is incredibly political. Um, I mentioned earlier on the National Spatial Strategy of 2002, and I have to say at the time, I regarded that as a sensible strategy where these hubs and gateways, people complained about about the towns and cities that were that became the hubs and gateways and you'll always get you know disagreement on these sorts of policies but in the main i actually thought the national spatial strategy made a lot of sense and i really hoped it would be delivered and then a few years later we got charlie mccreevy pulling a rabbit out of the hat the night before a budget to introduce decentralization of the public sector and I thought initially, yeah, decentralization seems like a good idea. It seems consistent with the National Spatial Strategy. And suddenly we discovered that the decentralization plan really had nothing to do with the National Spatial Strategy. It was just a political ploy um, used by a Fianna Fáil minister ahead of a general election to try and curry favor in rural areas. So there's a long history of it but and as i say it is very contentious yeah you've got to have a visionary driving this and you've got to have you've got to have that drive and the temptation to go for political gimmicks like decentralization is always there for politicians and so you've got to have you you've got to resist that temptation um decentralization is a good idea moving the government out of capital congested overcrowded overpriced expensive offices into the regions um, is a good idea. The UK government is is doing it at the moment. It's announced that it's moving um, to places like Darlington. Um, it's moving some of the treasury, you know, the prime ministry at the heart of government, right at the centre of Whitehall, quite literally at the centre of Whitehall, at the junction of Whitehall and Parliament Square. It's moving jobs 
over the next quite a lot of jobs, it says, to, to Glasgow. Now, as you say, Jim, it requires follow-up. Um, and it requires more than more than an announcement. Um, but if they do it, 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 it could be significant. And it is a very good idea from um, both an economic perspective. It's cheaper to put people up there. But of course, you've got lots of vested interests. A lot of people won't want to move. And when we look at what's happening at the moment, I know people that have said, yeah, fine, by all means, move my job to Glasgow. But um, I'll still be working from home from Surrey. And I'll maybe go up to Glasgow for one day a month. These sorts of things are going to have to be confronted. There is one policy choice, one policy lever that you could pull on, which would require both vision, drive and money. Because one of the things that creates vibrant communities, anywhere you put one of these things, it it tends globally to be a pattern that you observe is that when when you put a decent form of third level education, a university or a higher level college in a town, it can work wonders if you do it right. And by doing it right, it usually means throwing a lot of money at it. So I think that combining a spatial strategy with an education strategy is a very good idea. And it's certainly, I think, a a tailwind for Ireland at the moment, particularly with respect to what the UK is doing to fees for its overseas students. There seems to be low-hanging fruit or an open goal or whatever cliche you want to use to expand Irish education, both for the domestic audience for the domestics, for for kids in Ireland, but also for the overseas student. And we know that Irish education has been woefully underfunded anyway, wherever you have it. Um, If you want to regenerate a town, a village or a city, stick a university there or expand the ones that you've got. The the other thing that you mentioned in the context of the Greenway, at least in the sense of its name, I I take from this, is that this is another tailwind that we know is going to be around for years, and that's the Green Agenda. We're going to have to spend a lot of money greening our economies, decarbonizing them, and there must be opportunities for regional development within that. You and I have worked extensively in the past on wind and solar energy projects for, in, in various ways, and there's a revolution coming there. It's underway, and Ireland, particularly with respect to wind, could take great advantage of this, but there are always people who say no aren't there, Jim? There are indeed. And um, when we published that report um, a few years back, um, I remember getting some dreadful vitriol on social media from individuals who are totally opposed to wind energy. Um, And I actually think um, the vision we presented back then, uh, which was predicting a, a very dramatic fall in the price of wind energy, actually has materialized. In fact, we were being way too conservative at the time. But I, I agree with you that the that the whole green agenda actually has to be seen as a key part of drive, driving regional and rural economic development. I'm really interested in what you're saying there about universities as drivers of regional economic activity. Um, Finland being an example of a country many years ago that actually used universities, particular types of universities, for example, based around agriculture as drivers of rural areas that appear to work very well. Um, Here I'm becoming very parochial again. Um, I have been involved for a number of years in the campaign in Waterford for a university of the Southeast based in Waterford Institute of Technology. And um, God only knows what the status of that project is. But I remember um, about 10, more than 10 years ago, looking at the Southeast, doing a socioeconomic analysis of it. And there was a few things that stood out. One was the lack of high quality employment. 
um, because the reality is that when people left secondary school, many of them went away to college um, in Galway, Cork, Limerick or Dublin and they never came back. Um, and I, I, I would be in that category myself. I came to Dublin and never went back. And I'm not saying I represent a brain drain out of the Southeast, but certainly um, we got a massive brain drain out of the Southeast. And um, I believe then, and I continue to believe it, that the creation of a high quality university in the Southeast actually could be a very significant driver of regional economic activity. But there are so many vested interest groups who are totally opposed. So for example, you know, the existing universities think we have enough or probably too many universities in Ireland already. Um, I tend to disagree with that. Um, you have, you know, various regions vying for, um, e even in the Southeast, there's a, a proposal to develop a technological university and there's a row going on between Kilkenny, Carlow and Waterford as to where the headquarters should be. Uh, and that's another really difficult problem with regional economic development. We, we still see him behave. That's why you need somebody in Yes, a visionary. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, you, I totally you need somebody in charge and you need some, some, somebody with power, with authority to actually take these decisions, execute them and be held accountable for them. Um, but Jim, Ireland is going to be faced with a different kind of regional development problem, perhaps, and I stress perhaps, in the future, um, because as you know, the reunification debate is trundling on, and with everything that's going on in the UK, but also with everything that's going on in Ireland, there is the possibility um, that is much mooted in the press these days on some long time scale of reunification. And so th the North, the six counties, could well become a region that you're going to be responsible for. And it's going to be these days a lesser developed region relative to the other 26 counties. It's a poorer part of the island of Ireland. And you're going to be faced with having to um, uh, develop that, economically speaking, apart from all of the political and sociological problems that are going to come with potentially reunification. And as you know, and I'm going to be provocative here, and we haven't got much time, but um, we may come back to it. I just wondered about one of the things I floated with you before is that the best way to a, achieve um, peaceful, uh, persuasive reunification, because you, you have to persuade a certain number of people in the North to vote for it, um, presumably a certain number of unionists at the very least, the way in which you can do that and redevelop or help further develop the, the northern economy is to move the capital city from Dublin to Belfast. What do you think? Right, Chris. Best of luck with that one. Um, it, it, it is interesting that over the last couple of weeks, um, Jim O'Callaghan and Fianna Fáil uh, gave a very interesting speech on, or delivered a very interesting speech on reunification and his vision. And um, I, as far as I remember, he was talking about uh, the Shannon sitting in Belfast and the Dáil sitting in Dublin. Um, I think turning Belfast into the capital city of the island from a political administrative perspective um, is something that will never wash, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think it's, it's, it's pie in the sky stuff. Well, the Germans did it after their reunification. Uh, of course, the Germans did it, but... I, the Germans. I, yeah, I still think that, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about Northern Ireland is still a deeply divided society. Okay, and I think many people down here... Well, this, would, this would be an act... An act uh, this would be... A, well, this would be a generous act of... of um, but, but many of us feel totally alien 
in Northern Ireland. I mean, when I go to London, um, when I go over to see QPR... Well, that has to change, doesn't it? We have... We, we we have to do something to affect dramatic change if this if this project is to be succeeded is to be successful. Yeah, but the question is, how many people actually want a united Ireland at this juncture? Um, you know, I I really believe, I suspect if there was a vote in the morning, um, a lot of people would reject it uh, because there are a lot of issues. I mean, if you look at well, you you pointed out that Northern Ireland would be a seriously lesser developed region of the All Ireland economy. Uh, a £10 billion subvention from the UK government every year, um, a massive dependence on public sector employment in the labour force. So I, I think the United Ireland will eventually happen, but I think the challenges in getting there um, will be incredibly difficult. And um, I think you should continue to think on about your notion of moving the capital to Belfast. Best of luck with that one. Well, Jim, I think that we probably should leave it there. I suspect we're going to get some comments and feedback on on that suggestion at at, at the very least. And it may well be something that we come back to. But thanks for the chat. And um, thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll be uh, coming back very, very soon. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 